You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so what we've been doing over the past several weeks is working through various psalms to show you how prayer is formative in the life of a Christian. And not just formative in our lives, but formative in our hearts. Prayer helps us to understand God. It helps us to understand his character and our relationship to him as his creatures. Through prayer, it's like he's changing the prescription in our glasses by his spirit. We don't have to squint anymore. Prayer in all of its forms just helps us see things better. Prayer forms us. And the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. But today we're studying Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is not a prayer. It's an introduction. See, most nonfiction books you're going to read have a section called the introduction. This is a brief, maybe only a few pages long section at the very beginning of the book. And this section, though, is very important. It's going to often serve various purposes. But one of the purposes of an introduction is to present some information necessary for the book's comprehension. It helps answer the question, what does my reader need to know in order to understand the rest of this book? And that's the purpose of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is giving us all the info that we need to understand the prayers that we are about to read and how we can pray them as well. And like the rest of the wisdom literature in Scripture, because that's what Psalm 1 is, it's a wisdom psalm, Psalm 1's purpose is to help us understand what it looks like to live a godly life. And to live a godly life means to live a wise life. And to live a wise life means to live a blessed life. And the main point the psalmist is making here in his introduction to the Psalter is this. True blessedness is found in deep, delightful relationship with God. True blessedness, a blessed life, is found in deep, delightful relationship with God. And that's, uh, it's a relationship where we delight in God because he's first delighted in us. And as it relates to the Psalms, which again are a book of prayers, it's a relationship where we speak to God in prayer because he's first spoken to us in his word. And so Psalm 1 is the appropriate introduction to the book of the Psalms because in a book filled with words that are directed toward God, We start here with instructions for how to listen to him. And so let's hear what the Lord has to say to his church this morning. Look with me in verse 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, this psalm, as I said, describes the blessed life. And in only six verses, uh, it's giving us a sweeping view of this life. But the psalmist begins to describe what a blessed life is by first telling us what a blessed life isn't. He's going to show us what blessedness looks like through contrast. In each set of verses, we'll see him contrasting the life of a blessed person against that of the life of a wicked person or an unrighteous person. And, and I should say that that, that that word here in verse 1, blessed is the man, the word man here in verse 1, it really means representative human. So it could be read, blessed is the person. It is the man, the idyllic human. And so what we're going to see here is that while many descriptors of a blessed and a wicked person are used in this psalm, there remain only the two categories. On the last day, when we stand before God, we are either going to fall in the category of the blessed or we are going to fall in the category of the wicked. There is no third option. But because the psalmist starts by looking at what blessing isn't, we should do just for a minute, we should do likewise. And so what we see here in verse 1 are snapshots of wickedness that the author is going to use to contrast against blessing. And it's easy to read a progression into wickedness here, right? With the walking to standing to sitting. But many commentators don't actually believe that that's what's taking place. They don't think that's what the psalmist had in mind. It's not that people can't progressively get worse, right? We know that people can get worse. It's just not what the psalmist likely was trying to communicate. Instead, it may be that the walking, standing, and sitting are describing various forms of unrighteousness. They're, they're, these are different ways of being wicked that someone could certainly progress in, right? We all, we all know that the worst person in the world could have been worse. But they still fall into the general category of the wicked. And so they're meant to poetically convey different snapshots into unrighteous lives. But if these are poetic depictions of actual truths, then what are the actual truths being poetically depicted? Let's tick through each in their turn. First, a blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his clothes and not be burned? To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to do exactly that. It's to answer that question with an arrogant yes. Yes, I can. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to take advice from the ungodly and expect that ungodly advice put into a godly person will still necessarily yield godly results. But have you ever had clean water from a cup that used to have coffee in it? I don't care how clean the water is that you're putting in, it's going to come out with hints of coffee. Or it's like taking stock advice from a person convicted of insider trading. You should not be surprised if at some point you end up doing something illegal in your portfolio. A blessed person does not look to the ungodly to be their primary source of advice or wisdom. A blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Next, we see a blessed person does not stand in the way of sinners. We could sum this one up with the common phrase, the ends justify the means. First of all, no, they don't, right? God does not need your wicked means to produce his just ends. 
But this gives us another glimpse into what blessedness is not. It's not standing in the way of sinners. It's not doing the things that sinners do. Right? You could have said that walking in the counsel of the wicked, it implied uh, participating in sin accidentally. But here we have someone sinning on purpose. But they'll begin to explain to you why they had to do it. They've got reasons. But let me be clear. Everybody sins for a reason. Nobody sins without reason. But reasons are not the same as excuses. There is no excuse for sin. It's not, well, I mean, I just had to choose between the lesser of two evils. No, you didn't. C.H. Spurgeon famously said, when given the choice between two evils, choose neither. We all have reasons, but a reason to sin is not an excuse for sin. And to stand in the way of sinners is to begin to sin intentionally. It's to begin to sin knowingly and then try to justify yourself for it. Give the reasons why you had to do it. And then third, a blessed person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Here we see just another form of unrighteousness. And this is all out derision toward God. To be a scoffer is to be a mocker of God and his people. And the poetic seated nature of this person implies a finality, right? How many times have you worked a long day and you, you get in the house and you go, I better not sit down because I might not get back up again. This is a person fully invested into a wicked lifestyle. And so in the end, we see that despite the different snapshots there are of wickedness in this psalm, there are still only two categories, the wicked and the righteous. And so that's what, the new, or that, that's what the psalm says blessing isn't. And you may say, at this point, you say, well, that's obvious. When you put it that way, that makes sense. But before we look at what the text says blessing is, we should take a, a middle step, right? And begin to deconstruct the misconceptions that we have about blessing before we begin to reconstruct the appropriate meaning in its place that the psalm is trying to tell us about. See, often when we think of blessedness or prosperity, what jumps to mind? Images of like money or maybe professional advancement. But then Jesus comes along and says in, in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor. Or maybe you're, you're, you, it, money isn't it for you. Maybe for you, when, when you think about blessedness or prosperity, you're thinking about comfort and ease. But then the Apostle James comes along in James chapter 1 and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, which assumes that there's going to be hardships in the Christian life that we're going to have to endure. It's not going to always be comfortable and easy. Or maybe you say, no, 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 those aren't it for me either. But instead, for you, blessedness is wrapped up in your reputation. I don't need to have everything I want. I just, I just want people to think highly of me. I want people to like me. But then Jesus comes along and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Right? At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, rejoice and be glad in this. Over and over again, true blessedness in the Bible is not what our modern culture presents it to be. And so let's now look 
at what it is. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, we get the contrast. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, the final form of wickedness that we saw in verse 1 is a seated, resolute scoffer, one whose seeming joy it is to mock and laugh at God in the ways of his people. And here we see the blessed life is resolute as well. It's equally resolute, but the resolution comes from a place of love. His delight is the law of the Lord. See, the law here is God's word. It's not just the commands, it's everything. It's the whole thing. And the blessed man delights in it. He sips up every last drop of it. It's his love, it's his joy, it's his pleasure to get to know God and how he's revealed himself to us through his word. What he's told us about his character and the way he deals with us. And then he goes on, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's a diligence here. There's an intentionality here. There's an equal resolution here. But one word that jumps out to many and trips up a lot of Christian readers is the word meditate. See, we tend to mm, just pull back at that word just a little bit. And the reasons vary, but let me give a couple. One, for one, many associate meditation with Eastern, non-Christian religions. And so in an effort maybe to not do accidentally what is unchristian, we end up failing to do on purpose what is a good Christian practice. But maybe that's not, not it for you. Maybe for others, your hesitation is far more practical. Maybe you would just say like, Matt, I just don't know how to meditate on God's word. I don't even know what that means. I wouldn't know where to begin. But friends, I'm confident, I'm confident that everyone in here actually does know how to meditate on God's word. Because every single person in here knows how to hold a grudge. Right, what do you do when you hold a grudge? You're constantly throwing yourself back into whatever the instance of offense was. In the situation, or perhaps in the presence of the person. You're constantly putting yourself back there, and so all of your spare, quiet moments are filled with bitterness that eventually turn into hatred and rage because your heart is always throwing you back in the offense. You spend so much time contemplating it, you end up pulling out every little detail of it, every little detail of the person, and guess what? You probably win every argument you have in the shower. But this is what we ought to be doing with God's word. We should be holding holy grudges against God's word. See, biblical meditation is filling your mind and your heart with God's word. It's rolling it over and over and over again in your head, like thoroughly chewing a piece of meat before you swallow it so that you know that you've gotten all of the rich flavor out of it. Through meditation, what you're often going to find is that your deepest and most meaningful insights about scripture, they don't come from spending just a minute or two with it. They don't come from, from reading the verse of the day and moving on. No, it comes from spending minutes that turn into hours, that turn into days, that may turn into weeks. It comes from seeping in the truth of God's word and letting it be branded upon your heart until you finally begin. This is, this is where you begin to draw out its deep meanings. And this is why, practically speaking, I encourage folks to meditate chunks of scripture. Meditate on them and then memorize them. Memorize chunks of scripture. Right? If this, 
uh, concept of meditation is new to you, then starting this week, start today. It's the morning, so you'll have the rest of the day. Begin to meditate on God's word by memorizing Psalm 1. Start with these six verses here. Resolve yourself to commit them to memory, and I guarantee you that in the time that it takes you to sear them on your heart, it will give you insights that you've never seen before. Insights that you couldn't have seen before. Insights that I can't even give you in a sermon about it. Because as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, God's word is at work in believers. And so that means that as we make a habit of day and night meditating on God's word and his character, we'll find that it actually does things to us. And we see that in this psalm here. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, it's the beginning of spring now. Um, and that means that the fruit trees in my yard have just blossomed. And I'm starting to see little apple and plum and peach buds growing on their branches. And right now there are fresh new green leaves on the trees. But just two weeks ago, there were flowers everywhere. But if you go back a little bit further, just six weeks ago, these trees looked like nothing more than planted sticks. They were completely empty. They were bare. In the cold of the winter, from all appearances, they seemed like they were dead. But they weren't dead. They were drawing up water from the ground all winter long, preparing for the season ahead. So that in their season, they would yield fruit. And that's us. It's not always fruiting seasons. And so don't define prosperity or blessing in your life by visible fruit. Biblically speaking, prosperity isn't defined by fruitfulness. It's defined by faithfulness. See, my, tra my trees faithfully drew up water from the ground all winter so that in their season, they would be ready to produce fruit. The water was at work in them all winter long. Can you say the same for yourself? See, the prophet Jeremiah uses this same illustration in Jeremiah 17, but when he does it, he contrasts a person whose trust is in their own strength, in their own ability, against that of a person whose trust is the Lord. See, what you prioritize, what you, make, uh, what you take in during these hard, wintry seasons of life, when your life is hard, they show you where your truest trust is, where your true allegiance lies. So if this is a wintry season for you, and it might be, ask yourself, what am I taking in? What am I relying on in this season? Is it God and his word? Or is it my own ability and my own strength? Because for you, it may be winter now, but spring is coming. And hear this, godly fruit is only going to be produced by a tree that has its roots deep, pulling out the, the water that it needs to survive, has its roots deep in the ground. Or as Jeremiah puts it, blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Friends, send your roots out toward his streams of life-giving water so that you may yield your fruit in its season. 
See, last year, uh, my wife and I, we had to take down uh, a magnolia tree in our front yard that we loved uh, because it, it had died. It had a disease. It wasn't drawing up any water at all. And we, be- we began to find this out because it, one day we were out in the front yard and I just reached up and pulled on a branch about the size of my thigh and just pulled it right off. It didn't take much. And this is what the psalmist says is the way of the wicked. The righteous are planted and they're drawing up all the water that they need. But look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is simply dead, dusty leftovers of what used to be alive. And the wind is able to just pick it up and take it away. It doesn't take very much at all. But the blessed person is rooted. This person is established near the life-giving water. And so the the winds cannot take this away. The winds can't blow this away. And so with these things in mind, we then get the logical implications of verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Often in the Bible, uh, we see God's presence showing up in fire, right? God appears to Moses in the burning bush. He leads Israel by a pillar of fire in Exodus 13. The Holy Spirit comes on the early church in tongues of fire in Acts 2. And the author of Hebrews says that only the things that cannot be shaken will be able to withstand the consuming fire that is our God in Hebrews chapter 13, chapter 12, excuse me. But you know what cannot stand fire for even one second? Chaff. It's kindling. Dead wood and grass, they're burned up in an instant. The unrighteous, the wicked, will not be able to stand in the judgment because they will not be able to be in the very presence of God without being consumed by the fire. And so, the blessed, and so to be blessed means to be able to stand in the judgment, to not get consumed and burnt up. But how do we do that? Right? That's the fundamental question that every person needs to wrestle with in this life. How can a wicked sinner like me stand before a just God? And given what we've read in this psalm so far, so far you may answer, well, I guess I need to meditate on his word. Pastor said I need to commit it to memory. I need to know everything that there is to know about God. But simple knowledge is not sufficient. If that's what you've gotten from me, you've misunderstood. Simple knowledge is not sufficient, right? Because we all know that there's a difference between knowing things about someone and knowing someone, right? The Bible tells us that the demons know a lot about God, but guess what? They're still demons. The psalmist says we need to do more than know about God. We need to delight in him. We need to love him. We need to truly know him. Remember, I said that the the purpose of this psalm, the point, the main point of the psalm is about our relationship with God and that our relationship with God is, is true blessedness is found in deep, delightful relationship with him. And so the question is, how do we move from knowing things about God to knowing God, to truly delighting in him, to loving him? Well, to answer that first, we have to see, as verse 6 puts it, that the Lord knows you. The word here for know, it has deep, intimate meanings. It's the same word used early in Genesis to describe Adam and Eve and that they knew one another and bore children. 
And so you can know him. You can know him truly and intimately. Hear this. First, because he loves you. He knows you. You delight in him because in Christ he's shown that he's first delighted in you. Or as the hymn writer put it, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. We begin to know him. We begin to delight in him when we see that he's delighted in us unto death. To know what someone says, even to meditate on it is one thing, but to delight in the words of the lover of your soul is another thing entirely. See, the, the gospel accounts show us Jesus Christ, a man who truly delighted in the law of the Lord. A man who ate and drank and breathed the scriptures, so much so that if you were to cut him, he bled God's word. Right? Remember the temptation in Matthew chapter 4? How does he respond? He recites scripture. When he's literally nailed to the doorposts of death in the crucifixion, what is he doing? He's reciting psalms. See, what does the Bible tell us? This is the man. This is the man that the psalm describes. But he was burned up like the wicked chaff so that we could be rooted in his righteousness. He sat down resolutely in our cursing so that we could be resolved to sit down in his blessing. He delighted in us first and now we, we are able to delight in him in return. This is the blessed life. And this is the sturdy, rock-solid foundation that we need to stand upon, that we're able to stand upon when we pray. This is the information that we need to know so that we can get, engage God deeply in prayer, in the types of prayers that we see people engaging with God in the Psalms. And it's when we lay hold of this truth that the duty to know God becomes a delight and the blessed relationship that we've been invited into. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father...